Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hello, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I produce the TMA Practice Well podcast and manage the TMA Education Center, where we strive to help physicians and their practice thrive. I'm happy to welcome back guest speaker Fred Burton, the executive director of Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence, based out of Austin, Texas. Recently, Fred shared guidance for preparedness against personal attacks, and since, our Texas physicians have submitted many questions. Fred, thank you for coming on and taking these questions. Hi. I'm going to jump right in. To start, what do you suggest is the best way to be prepared for a violent event? Have a plan. Think about how you're going to react in the event of a violent threat actor. As I mentioned in my presentation, most threat actors take advantage of that shock and awe initially And there's that attack recognition uh, problem where a lot of people freeze. It's called freezing on the X. I've investigated countless attacks on VIPs, dignitaries, citizens, tourists, and, and crime where people freeze and don't react. You have to move. You have to get off the X, it's called as quickly as possible, change your location, flee the scene. Depending upon the circumstance with a violent event, these are critical moments where you have to decide, am I going to fight or flee? How close is that threat actor? Do I have the potential to try to grab whatever weapon they might display? 
Or is the distance like six to eight feet and I can't close it? So I need to get out of the way and I need to get behind cover. I need to run. I need to alert others. I need to pull the fire alarm. Recognize this. That individual will not expect you to immediately fight back either. I've seen that my entire career. The moment that you start presenting some sort of resistance, you quickly could turn the tables, especially if there's two, three, four people that could overwhelm that individual. And it's impossible to predict how those things are going to unfold, but it's something that you really need to think about. And remember, sometimes there just aren't good options. And sometimes the only options you have are bad ones. That's true. And that was a good summary of tips you gave us in November. I encourage our listeners to go back and check out that episode. Now, Fred, a lot of the questions our physicians asked centered around guns and concealed weapons. What are your thoughts about learning to use a gun? Now, that's a tough question to, to answer. And I'm an individual that, that is a gun owner. Uh, I've carried weapons, guns, pistols, and revolvers, and I'm old enough to, to say that I started on revolvers with the U.S. Secret Service in 1981. If you're going to purchase a firearm, get trained. Get trained. Understand how that weapon works. Make sure you're good and proficient with it. Just don't go to the concealed handgun license course and that's it. If you're going to carry a weapon, make sure you know how to use it. Make sure you know how to safely store it. That's critical. Buy a lockbox. All of the big chain stores from Cabela's to uh, to Bass have these that you can purchase and secure it, especially if you have young children at home. That's critical. The other things to think about for home defense, and I've written a fair amount of this in the past, is your old-fashioned shotgun the Remington 870, for example, is probably one of the best home defense weapons that you could ever own. When it comes down to personal weapon selection, make sure that whatever you decide to purchase, if you go that route, you're comfortable with how it feels in your hand, and then you're comfortable as to how to safely secure it, carry it, store it, and that you're proficient with shooting it. And as a security professional, what are your thoughts on a physician having a license to carry? I would never say no based on that individual's rights to carry, based on their personal choice. I do know, and I have a lot of physician friends that I'm aware are concealed license carry gun owners. I know some that also wear ballistic vests on their job in the ER. Those are personal choices predicated on what your comfort level is, your threat level that you feel, um, your ability to defend yourself or want to defend others in a moment of crisis. Those are individual choices that only you can make. I would say this, though, 
I'm not a corporate legal counsel, and I would make sure that whatever you're doing in that space is legal or you have uh, some degree of liability coverage that's going to cover you in an event like this. I, I can't tell you the times when I was a cop and even when I was a federal agent where I've seen cops and agents leave guns in places they shouldn't, such as restrooms or uh, down rooms. Uh, so that's something that you have to think about, too, predicated on the nature of your business. Uh, I'll give you an old agent tip on these kinds of things. Uh, it was routine for us to carry backup weapons on ankle holsters. You tend not to forget a pistol or a revolver on an ankle holster more than you would on your waist. I have an ankle holster, and I personally love that. And uh, it's the last place anybody ever looks for a weapon, even for cops when they're searching suspects. So uh, it's one, one thing to think about if you're going to carry a weapon. One of our physicians, a female psychiatrist, asked about stun guns for people who are inexperienced with handguns. She shared that she keeps a concealed flashlight stun gun in her bag, and as a female physician, feels more secure at least having access to that spark, and it's allowed, and it gets others' attention. I like that. You're thinking about the threat. You're prepared. Be ready to use it if need be. Those kinds of stun guns and tasers, and you know, to be quite honest with you, I don't know what's legally available today on the market to, to purchase, but for those of you who may not want to carry a, a firearm uh, and are uncomfortable with mace, that's another option. I, Having been stunned myself and maced myself, uh, both in training and, and, and other scenarios, I can tell you that it gives you time to flee and to run. And that is something that you need to do is by distance from these kinds of threats. Uh, you know, I've carried a pistol or a, a revolver since 1981. I've never been one to really like them. I've considered it as a tool, as part of the job that I've had. I know how to use it. Uh, I routinely go to the range. Uh, I practice. But I really don't like guns, personally. Yeah. Now, what about having defensive weapons in the office? Many physician practices lease their space, and landlords have policies and postings for no handguns on the premises. But you're aware that people intent on violence don't abide by signs. Yeah, well said. Um, you know, criminals uh, could care less about signs that say, don't carry weapons uh, in your facility. Uh, those are tough calls. Uh, I would uh, suggest uh, as a, um, as a uh, physician uh, in your practice in that building uh, to uh, seek some legal counsel advice as it pertains to, to how you feel um, what you need to do. Uh, maybe a frank discussion with your building property manager. Uh, as to the potential of whether or not you you may think about renewing your lease uh, would cause some consternation, especially now with uh, a lot of lease properties available around uh, the state of Texas due to COVID. Um, and uh, you know, I I 
I, I would never be one to uh, to counsel you to to do something that's illegal. Uh, but, um, you know, there's times in life that you have to do what you think is best to protect yourself, your family. So uh, you be the judge of that. And what tips do you have for dealing with the person who enters the office with a gun? That's a challenging one, especially here in the great state of Texas. I can remember when I moved here 20 plus years ago, having left the government as a special agent, and my kids were small then. And my son coming home one day saying, Daddy, Bobby up the street, his parents have got all kinds of guns in the uh, house. And it kind of dawned on me that I was no longer in the D.C. area and that I had moved to Texas. And that's, there's a lot of hunters. There's a lot of outdoors people that, that love their weapons here in Texas. And it's a challenging environment. And now you have open carry. And you also have the Second Amendment uh, hot buttons around our polarized nation today. Uh, so it's a very problematic issue. And a person that enters the office with a gun in your medical space, I don't think they're allowed. I'm not an expert on Texas laws, but I don't think they're allowed to carry a weapon unless they're a peace officer uh, in uh, a medical facility, although I could be wrong with that judgment. Uh, I'm, I'm not a lawyer either. So if an individual enters your space with a weapon, one of the things that I would probably do would be diplomatically addressing that individual that this is a safe area. We have a lot of patients here and it would be best for everybody if you go back to the car and leave that weapon in your vehicle. I really, really would appreciate that man or sir to make everybody feel comfortable in this safe place. If they persist on wanting to carry their weapon because uh, that's their belief, I would still uh, try to say I understand, but I really, really would love to talk about that outside of the workplace here. So how about if I walk with you to the car and we can continue chatting about that and let's leave that weapon in your vehicle. My suggestion would be to try to talk that person out of the workspace as best you can. Again, these are one of those moments that cops hate. I've had to deal with people like that. And um, quite frankly, it's scary. It's a difficult kind of situation. And this leads to another question, again, from a psychiatrist. And that is, how do we, the physician, notify law enforcement in a manner that will be taken seriously? And they add the comment that in Texas, removal of weapons and guns is very difficult to achieve, and usually temporarily, if the person is an immediate threat to themselves or others. Great question. Uh, as a young Secret Service and State Department officer, I spent a lot of times talking to individuals that had threatened cabinet-level officials that suffered from mental health disorders, and a good number of them had weapons. And we had a Title 18 statute that we could use to, to use as a vehicle to get them into the mental health system where they could be evaluated and treated and, for the most part, reduce that threat. Tough, tough to do. The only thing I can encourage you to do in that space is to be persistent with your notifications. Make the police report. If you don't think it's been taken seriously, go and talk to the watch commander, the lieutenant in charge. If you're in a small town, Go talk to the chief. 
if you have an elected sheriff, they are more prone to listen because they're elected. They know the importance of taking care of uh, especially physicians and businesses in the community. Do that. Go visit the sheriff and say, Sheriff, I need your help. I've got this individual that is a problem. How do we solution through this? How can you help me? Good. What are some other different safety measures? For example, installing panic buttons and etc. Um, that we may not know exist or that's new. And what are things that are cost effective? Great question. I'm a big fan of panic buttons. If you have an office, install panic buttons. They either could be silent or they could be audible. Put it at your reception's desk. Put it in locations that others can get to. Tactically stage those around your office. Put those in, for example, if you're the physician that owns the location, have one in your office. Have one at the reception's office. Have one in the down room or break room. Multiple panic buttons and make sure they work. Test those periodically. When it comes to new devices, there's a lot of new technology in play today, such as um, predominantly license plate readers for exterior perimeters. So if you have an angry patient or customer that repeatedly drives around your facility or your clinic, you can have license plate readers that catch that and can automatically alert you to a threat actor. That's amazing technology, folks. What I mean by that, it's what is called a time and distance variable. Let's say you are a physician and you've been threatened and someone's posted a nasty comment about you on social media. That happened to me recently on Twitter. Uh, so if you have a license plate reader camera, you can track that vehicle conducting pre-operational surveillance around your house and also your workplace. And if you have an individual that's driven by both, or repeatedly around your facility, you have a problem. That is a big red flag, what we call a tripwire in this business, and that threat actor needs to be monitored and motive needs to be determined. What is cost effective? There's portable panics today. You can carry, you can carry them around your neck. You could throw them in your uh, coat pocket. Uh, loud audible alerts that you just press a button that's kind of mind-numbing. I know a lot of people don't really like MACE, especially if you're in the pediatric space. Things could go wrong there. I get that. But I'm a big fan of MACE, too, especially for those lonely walks from your office to your car if you're not going to carry a weapon. Carry a striking object to be able to hit quickly if need to. MACE is good. I've got MACE in all of my vehicles all of my family cars, just in case. Don't wait if you perceive that threat. Mace and run. When I exercise in the morning, I carry mace. I know exactly what I'm going to do if I'm confronted with a threat. I'm not going to wait and say, sir, you're threatening me. You need to leave now. I'm going to mace that individual the moment I recognize a threat and run. Okay. What about having a parked police vehicle in the parking lot as a deterrent? Sometimes Austin PD leaves a parked uh, police car on a grassy stretch of 35, and even though I see it every day, it slows me down and I check how fast I'm going. 
That's a good question. I recently wrote a thought leadership piece for Police One magazine not too long ago as, does the presence of police, a uniform police presence in your facility today, actually raise your threat profile? We are living in the days of rage. Defund the police. Horrific protests in places like Portland and Minneapolis. Uh, the so-called war on cops. I go down to Texas State and talk and teach to their criminal justice students all the time. It's a tough job today. From a threat assessment perspective, the general consensus in the corporate security world today is that plainclothes cops are better options. You don't know when individuals that are just police haters are going to attack you because you do have that marked police unit in front of your building. When it comes to those measures, police cars and towns because of uh, speeders, that's an old uh, tried and true cop trick. So uh, I slow down too, but I'm pretty sure I can talk my way out of a ticket. True. <laughs> Good point. Now, is there a difference in how physicians should prepare for a large, more populated area versus smaller buildings? Good question. For example, did you know in high-rise locations, it's actually a longer fire, EMS, and police response time? So if you're on the 42nd floor of a condo office in Houston, it's a longer response time. There's benefits with being in large office buildings because of people and usually security at times, but there's also challenges with that. So what I tend to see is mindset, well, I'm in a big office building, nothing can happen to me. Not necessarily. What other threats are in the building? It's an issue that we would call in the Secret Service or in the State Department Proximity threats, meaning you might have absolutely no problems at all in your physician's practice, but you have no idea what's going on next door with the other doctor or the other doctor down the hall. So there's nothing wrong with having a uh, your own localized neighborhood watch in those kinds of facilities if people are willing to share that kind of data and let others know that there's a problem. Unfortunately, what I see in this space is there's not a lot of sharing of intelligence at times by industry. I do believe there would be less threats, less act of violence if more of that occurred. Some of you who might have seen Department of Homeland Security alert where the likelihood of additional violence in the United States is far greater today than in the past. Trust me, having written these kinds of alerts in the past, you write them to notify that there's problems. So what's in proximity to your practice? Are there any churches? Are there any educational facilities? Are there any uh, synagogues? Are there any mosques? Are there any high-profile targets that you could be in proximity to? Think about that. That is an excellent point and shows how much thought and preparation really needs to go into this. What training or resources are there for physicians and all of their staff to do together so that they can be better prepared? Uh, it depends on what that preparation would be. For an active shooter, 
the FBI has a very good active shooter. It's quite shocking. It's not for the faint of heart. They have a very good video on their website on active shooters, for example. Yes, I've seen that video. It's a good training video. In fact, this video from the FBI is included in TMA's on-demand webinar on active attack events and preparedness. I'll include a link to the Education Center in the episode description. And physicians, this is an excellent resource to include in your annual staff trainings. Fred, so to wrap up then, what are some ways physicians can take general training or preparedness information like the video and apply it to their practice? Um, That's one of the challenges with uh, a general awareness kind of presentation with this. Every workspace is a little bit different. At times, there's physical challenges with constructions of, of the building. I was, for example, doing a security survey of a location once, and they only had one way in and out. And then the back door, believe it or not, was locked, which was against fire code. So um, you have to take that into account. And think about, again, multiple ways of egress. Uh, Long before I got into uh, the police and law enforcement business, I was a 17-year-old EMT in the Washington, D.C. area, and we practiced a lot of going in and out of windows in rescue situations. A lot of people forget, depending upon, again, the location of their office, uh, can they get out of that window faster than making their way through the door. Remember this, in moments where things go bad, The one thing that is constant in this space is they go bad very, very quickly and faster than what anybody understands, whether that's police shootings, citizen shootings, and then fester on the response time aspect that I mentioned. In Austin today, eight minutes and 45 seconds. If you're in a rural environment, it could be 30, 45 minutes. Factor that into whatever localized security plan that you might have. For example, if I know my response time is more than 10 minutes, I'm going to create a safe haven inside of my office space that's secure, that's heavied up. I've done a lot of uh, evaluations and security for high net worth CEOs, for example. And most have safe havens in their home. It's an area that you can retreat to in the event of an armed intruder. You can hunker down. You have alternative means of communication. You keep your shotgun there. You have water and power bars as backup food, for example. And you can wait that intruder out. So again, investigate your police response time. Figure out how long you're going to be on your own. That's important. Plan accordingly based on that. Fred, thank you. I hope I've been somewhat helpful today. And thank you for listening. Yes, this was all very helpful. To our listeners, you can hear more from Fred in a previous episode from November or check out Fred's podcast, The Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast with Fred Burton. We hope you found this episode beneficial. You can find more programs and claim CME for today's episode in the TMA Education Center. A link is provided in the episode description. 
To receive more helpful tips, remember to like and follow TMA Practice Well podcast. Until next time, stay well.